2: The following podcast contains naughty language.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 8th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to go long on Super Bowl 55, how the Bucks and Tom Brady won it, and how the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes got run over. We're also going to discuss player discontent in the NBA, where LeBron James is mad about the proposed All-Star game, and Kevin Durant is mystified by the league's COVID protocols. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn, Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and he spent the Super Bowl thinking about vowels, vowel sounds. Should I explain that? Yeah, so um, what's I, a uh, super vocalic? Is that yes. what it's called?
0: Super vocalics are words or phrases that contain the letters a, e, i, o, and u, but only once. Um, it was created by a friend of mine named uh, Eric Chaykin, who, with the linguist Ben Zimmer, have started a great website called Beyond Wordplay. And so we tweeted out super bowl Calyx during the game. I'll give you
1: some examples.
0: So there was well, a, th- so
1: there was one player in the game who was one. Maybe we should save that. We if, could, we could g- say give people, give people a chance to think about it. Okay, one what player, player in, the in the game. Yep. Had and in his name, mm. first and last, yep. but only once each.
0: Another Super Bowl player who's had, uh, who's a super vocalic was Yura, Eumanyura. Eumanyura, A-E-I-O-U, once in, in each name. Some of my Super Bowl-calics, there was that video of Tom Brady walking in to the stadium without a mask on. So I tweeted, mask, Tom immune. Joel Anderson, I, <laughs> <laughs> TD catch by Bucks tight end Gronk.
2: I'm not E. I own you once. I'm not as smart as uh, Stefan. I was up here trying to figure out if there was an E in the kong Sue, and uh, there's not.
1: So, <laughs> I, I don't think there is.
0: No. Let no. me just finish uh, with my my last one. Ugh. Okay. One more
1: Brady ring.
0: Numeral one more Brady ring.
1: With us from Palo Alto, (laughs) slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and 6, Joel Anderson. Joel, I started to ask you this last night, but decided I was going to save it for the show. What did you end up eating during the Super Bowl?
2: Okay, yeah. (laughs) America needs to know. I did not get the crab, uh, the lobster sandwich that I asked uh, Janae about. We ended up getting uh, a bunch of appetizers from Chili's and just making it work like that. So, you know, get some little chips with queso, chips with guac you know they have uh, some fried cheese uh the southwestern egg rolls it was pretty good man i you know i I'm, I'm a huge chili's fan you know my first date in life was happened at chili's so i've been wow. loyal to it since then
1: chili's listen up you have a potential uh, spokesman here uh it's funny that you mentioned that because our plan was that we were going to make some baby back ribs
2: <laughs> really
1: not not the chili's <laughs> baby variety baby. but just baby back ribs but then we decided that it was going to take too long. And so we ended up uh, making fried oyster boys.
2: Look at you. All right. Yeah. You? A little, little, little nod to the home. home oh, a front, native. Uh, very nice. Yeah. How, what what so kind the of Saints, sauce did you use on the, that?
1: The, the, the Saints did, in fact, win the Super Bowl um, <laughs> in, in this imaginary fried oyster-laden universe. Uh, remoulade sauce.
2: Okay. Cool. Man, look at you. I mean, that is very Norlinian of you. I'm proud. Mm-hmm.
0: So you, you, guys, you, know, you guys whipped up some meals while well, Josh whipped up a meal. And I came up with QBs, Bucks, Brady, 43 <laughs> is very old. Casey's Mahomes, just 25 isn't.
2: Look,
1: We all get to
2: choose the way we want to enjoy the Super Bowl stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> perfect segue to your introduction here, Joel. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
2: So way back in late March, a couple weeks into our global pandemic nightmare, we here at Hang Up and Listen were talking about Tom Brady's surprising signing with the Tampa Bay Bucks, And it didn't seem like a great fit at the time. You know, Brady was coming off of a year where he had the same QBR as his predecessor in Tampa, Jameis Winston, which would have made them both 16th in the league. And the Bucks hadn't made the playoffs since 2007. So if Brady was hoping to close out his career on top or somewhere near it, the Bucks, who happened to have the worst record in American professional sports by percentage, they didn't seem like the best bet. So let's review what we said that day on March 23rd. Josh said, Brady's leaving, but he's already going to be 43 years old. Bill Belichick wins again. Stefan said, I don't think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to make it to the Super Bowl. And I had an even more dim view of the signing, and I said of Brady. He's probably not an elite NFL quarterback anymore. I just wonder how much of a future there is with him, not just in Tampa Bay, but in the NFL. So look at us know-nothings. Last night, Brady won his seventh Super Bowl in Tampa Bay's surprising route of the Kansas City Chiefs. Brady won MVP, but if anything, the victory was an ensemble effort that showed why Brady chose the Bucks in the first place. So, Stefan, yes, we got it wrong, very wrong, But it wasn't reasonable to expect any of this would happen, right?
0: Well, in my defense, Joel, I also did say, he'll make something reasonable happen. Okay.
1: (laughs) So, yeah. I think you also said, if they win the Super Bowl, it won't be 31-9 to (laughs) over the Chiefs, and Gronk (laughs) will not have two touchdown catches. You did say that. I did, yeah.
0: I went back and listened to all of that because I wondered whether we said that Tom Brady was washed. And... We mostly blamed Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft for being jerks, and we gave Brady credit for leaving, but we did say the Pats might have been justified because Tom Brady was kind of washed and... Also, you know, only two NFL teams, the Bucks and the Chargers, showed interest in signing him. In any case, Tom Brady makes fools of us all, as he always does. Joel, you noted that the game was mostly won by this collective effort. Tampa Bay's defense, great game plan by defensive coordinator Todd Bowles. Didn't help that Kansas City's uh, offensive line was totally decimated. And look, it wasn't like Brady was explosive in this game or in the playoffs generally. They beat Washington, New Orleans, and Green Bay. He threw those three interceptions against the Packers. But the game did seem to be perfectly schemed by Tampa's head coach, Bruce Arians, and its offensive coordinator, Byron Leftwich. And Brady did what he does. Josh, he managed the game beautifully. He made the necessary passes. He capitalized on mistakes. And he also capitalized on a few generous
1: calls by the refs. So... Something that Joel did not quote. I said on the show two weeks ago that the Chiefs' Eric Fisher had hurt his Achilles and that the Bucks had gotten pressure on Aaron Rodgers with Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett. Like, this was not unforeseeable. I mean, Joel, you f- foresaw it extremely accurately on, uh, on Twitter right before the game. And so I think the folly is in trying to predict things as far out as we tried to predict them. It wasn't like, you know, what we saw in the game on Sunday night, knowing what we'd seen all season and knowing the strengths and weaknesses of these teams going into the game was completely beyond uh, our ability to foresee or understand. But, you know, looking back to around this time last season, Tom Brady against the Titans in the playoffs, 20 for 37, 209 yards, no touchdowns and interception. That interception came on his last pass as a Patriot, a pick six that sealed the game for Tennessee. I mean, we saw what Tom Brady looked like when he didn't have any receivers and didn't have a good line around him. And so, you know, what does Brady bring to the table at this point? He's, you know, very, like, wise in in football terms. He's extremely uh, competent in terms of his ability to get the ball to open receivers. He still has a, a strong arm. The funny thing, the thing that we wouldn't have been able to predict, is that he's very healthy. He was the healthier quarterback in this game, and was healthy all year. He was certainly, a, you know, way healthier than than Drew Brees was, and um, in, in that playoff game. And you know, the the Washington football team was starting Taylor Heineke because all their quarterbacks were hurt, and so that was a, a big advantage that this old man was had no physical ailments at, at all. That, as far as we know, um, another strength that he has intelligence in terms of picking his team. Like he was you know going with Bruce Arians going with his coaching staff seeing the talent that the bucks had there that was very smart of them and savvy to to go to Tampa and then the last thing that i put down here is recruiting ability he got Rob Gronkowski um you know Leonard Fournette came to them after being on waivers you know Antonio Brown for as problematic as that signing was you know that's still free talent that the the bucks got And so, Joel, I I think, looking at all that, like the the sort of greatness of Brady, you have to at this stage you have to like look past the pure ability on the field and think about the vision that he showed and everything else that that he brought to this franchise.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And And I think, you know, going back to what you said about our folly was trying to predict out so far, like those are things that you really can't tell. We didn't know that Gronkowski was going to be joining him back in March. We didn't know that Antonio Brown would be joining him in March. We had no idea that Leonard Fournette would be on the team at that point in the season. And, and even if you move up the timeline a little bit, right, football can be really difficult to predict because we never really think about a team's evolution over the course of a season. Like So even if a great team is still winning games, we may overlook a team's problem areas, the things that reduces their margin for error later in the season against a, an equally greater resilient team. So where the Chiefs were the best team of the season at like week eight or nine, right? Uh, and, and definitely the better team when they played against the Bucks earlier the season – that didn't have much to do with the team that we saw left standing on Sunday, which had like way too many injuries and too many key spots. And the Bucks, with, you know, Tom Brady, his, you know, knack for being a great general manager, time to develop. The Bucks were the better, deeper, stronger team by the end of the year than the reigning champs. And it's again like, yeah, let's we, we should look off of like what Brady did on the field because he wasn't great, great this year. He was ninth in passer rating. Ninth in QBR, and the Bucks caught a few breaks along the way. I mean, the conferences, you know, the NFC's de- defending champ, the San Francisco 49ers, they imploded. They got to play the Saints with the deeply compromised Drew Brees. You know, he, he had 11 broken ribs again, which I was shocked that a human being could have that many ribs get broken and still stand up. And he somehow went into Lambeau Field, threw three interceptions, and came out a winner. That suggests to me that the bucks were a much deeper better team beyond brady and that like us crediting so much of this to brady is sort of reductive i mean obviously he had some role in building this team up but you know he we sometimes overstate the role of one guy in winning a game or winning a season like this and being a champion and i think that's what's going on here now
0: and but you do have to credit Brady for managing the team through the season. I mean, the the Bucks were seven and five at one point. They lost three out of four games um, before that. Brady hadn't really gotten on the same page as the receivers, including Gronkowski, who was kind of invisible for most of the regular season, I think. I mean, Brady Can I interrupt
1: and-, and say that the Saints beat the Bucks in Tampa 38-3? to Tampa mm-hmm. had, and mid-season, this wasn't like in the beginning of the year. That
0: was Tampa one of had those eight, games, right?
1: Tampa had eight yards rushing. Brady had three interceptions and no touchdowns. Breeze was 26 of 32 with four TDs and no interceptions. The Saints got 19 pressures against Brady, and the Bucs got just one sack. I
2: mean, Saints should have won a Super Bowl is what it sounds like.
1: Well, I what it, what it sounds like is that Tampa improved and the Saints regressed. I mean, you don't give the Super Bowl for mid-season performances. But, um, you know, I think we would be in agreement that if you swap quarterbacks in this game, the results wouldn't, the outcome wouldn't have changed, but the Bucs might have won by even more. (laughs) Um, I mean, the the Chiefs getting even nine points was uh, heroic, given that Mahomes was pressured 29 times, according to ESPN Stats and Info, which was the most ever- in a Super Bowl, and Brady was pressured just four times. I mean, that's no matter who the quarterbacks are. Um, you know, go ahead, John. No,
2: no, 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 no. Just because I, I, I wanted before you, we moved on to that piece of it. I, I think you're right in that, and you too, Stefan, in that the Bucks were a much better team by the end of the year than they were at the midpoint of the season. Or like I said, even week twelve. You know what it reminded me of. It reminded me a little bit of that Giants team to beat the 2008 Patriots in the Super Bowl. where like That team was uneven all season, didn't win their division, but in the playoffs, they won on the road. They won at Tampa. They won at Dallas. They won at Lambeau in the NFC Championship. And then they knocked off one of the best offensive teams in history. Those Chiefs, the team that they beat on Sunday— was one of the better offenses that we've ever seen in NFL history although it was not quite the same team they had built up a record of accomplishment over the course of the season that had them in that conversation and the Bucks just totally threw a blanket on them and they and you know so they did it less with the quarterback than with the pass rush and that's what reminded me of those old that old Giants team that what nobody would have thought was a great team Admit, point so Tom
1: Brady is the Eli Manning in this situation. Tom analogy. Brady was
2: Eli Manning in this situation. In O.C. uh Stefan, by the way, your guy.
0: To put a, a, a lid on Brady, he threw for 40 touchdowns this year, one of the highest in his career. He was sacked at one of the lowest rates in his career. And that coincides with the longevity, both for him, you know, TB12, pliability, he's got all that other stuff going for him, no doubt, but it's also helped him and Rodgers and Brees and Peyton Manning before them that the NFL has changed the rules to protect quarterbacks, and that started pretty much when Brady became a starter in the league. Um, All of them have benefited and been able to play into their late 30s and 40s um, because of that.
2: Well, you could even take it back to when Brady got his knee busted up by Bernard Pollard that year that a lot of these rules to protect quarterbacks, that he, he is he's played long enough that he can benefit from rules that were created in part to protect people like him. Right. So.
0: Andrew Beaton, by the way, in the Wall Street Journal has a really good piece about this that we can link to.
1: It's funny that like Brady's so like dominant and uh manages to triumph no matter what, that you could actually spin the Bernard Pollard injury that cost him that season and like busted up his knee as actually like ultimately good for his career and like <laughs> <laughs> leading him to to, to great triumphs. But um, the New York Times actually had a piece on penalties in the NFL this year that I found enlightening, which was that offensive holding was down Um, they just didn't call it this year in the NFL, just that the numbers were were microscopic. And that was actually intentional Um, on the NFL's part. They talked about it, that they were just going to keep it to obvious calls and defensive pass interference was up. And so that was a key explanation for why scoring numbers were so high. Um, And you saw that in the first half of the Super Bowl, where the um, Bucks got six first downs by penalty, got a bunch of drives extended um, by, you know, penalties in the Chiefs' defensive backfield. And um, I think, you know, we're going to talk about Mahomes and the Chiefs after our break here in a second. But when you have 29 pressures against you in a season when the league has said explicitly, you can hold – that's really bad. Like, I, I think, given the like era, the fact that this was the most pressures ever in a Super Bowl, it's like, I, I think we still haven't quite understood or grappled with how bad the Chiefs' offensive line was in that game and how good the Tampa Bay rush was. But we can get to all that uh, momentarily. All right. My favorite stat from this game was from uh, Next Gen Stats. Which uh, had Patrick Mahomes traveling 497 yards before throwing the ball or being sacked, the most scramble yards in a game by any quarterback since they've been tracking this in 2016. Joel, he looked to me like a, a quarterback or running back in the old Tecmo Ball, where you would just <laughs> run backwards <laughs> in order to, you know, to take advantage to, of Bo Jackson's. Uh, superhuman ability to just weave through the Tecmo defense. But Patrick (laughs) Mahomes, unfortunately, is human and was unable to uh, uh, single-handedly lead his team to victory despite doing some pretty ridiculous things.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of stats and the ultimate outcome, it's pretty easy to say that this was the worst game of Patrick Mahomes' career. He'd never been held without a touchdown in a game before, until last night. It was the first time he lost a game by more than one score, right? But I don't think that has to mean that he played a really bad game, if that makes any sense, because I thought that it was clear that he did the best that anybody could possibly do under those circumstances, which is essentially being under duress all night. And, you know, it could simply be that the way this game was determined is that Brady got to play against a defense that barely pressured him at all, only four times the lowest of the season for him and Mahomes was pressured in a way that we've never seen in a game of this magnitude and you know, as you mentioned, Josh, about my tweet before the game, it was just like it just seems like at a certain point that an offensive line can suffer enough injuries that it can affect the game that like any time that i've ever gotten a prediction wrong before a football game, it's always because I've underestimated the weaknesses of a a great team along the front lines, right? And so the Chiefs were missing both of their offensive tackles. They lost their left tackle late in the AFC championship game. They'd been without their right tackle since week six. They'd been without their left guard since week five. Eventually, that sort of stuff starts to take uh, take a toll on a team because you lose rhythm, you lose chemistry, and obviously you lose just, bottom line, a better, more effective offensive lineman. And so then you take that weakness with the offensive line and you match it up against a pass rush, a unit featuring Shaquille Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul that I think finished the year sixth in the pass rush win rate metric by ESPN. Um, and that's just a bad recipe, you know. So that's a recipe for failure. And as great as Patrick Mahomes has been, there's only so much you're going to be able to overcome. And so, while I, th- I think his, I think his statistics are going to be a little bit misleading. But I don't think that he played a particularly bad game. Do you? I mean, did you all think of him as playing a bad game last night?
0: I mean, it was hard to tell because he never. Yeah. You know, he very rarely had a chance to do the things that Patrick Mahomes has the opportunity to do. I mean, Todd Bowles' scheme was to not blitz because having four pass rushers was enough to pressure Mahomes into running backward 25 yards multiple times in that game, which allowed them to drop more defenders into coverage.
1: And the coverage. I mean, they were rushing good. four, and like three were getting there. Right. <laughs> I mean,
0: it was how many times did we see Mahomes not just sort of like break out of the pocket, but have to break out of the pocket backward? I mean, you know, running a giant sort of question mark
1: with turf toe.
0: I was also going to say he was somewhat physically compromised. It was obvious. He was limping visibly because of the toe injury. He had been concussed three weeks ago, and he took one brutal hit in the second half in the fourth quarter, after which I was astounded that he was still playing in the game. I mean, it was absurd that he was out there at 31-9 with four minutes to go. So, you know, he did what he could, and we got to see glimpses of Patrick Mahomes – particularly on that one drive in the fourth quarter where he made three ridiculous throws after being forced out of the pocket and running 20 yards backwards, um, including one where he was basically parallel to the ground while he threw the ball to the end zone and it hit the intended receiver in the face mask.
1: So the formula for the Chiefs to win this game would have been to completely change up what they had done all, you know, during the like Reed Mahomes partnership. So the Bucks come into this game with the advantage of being able to rush four and drop seven. And if you can rush four and get in his face in three seconds, there's not really anything you can do. But it did feel like the Chiefs, you know, it, it would have taken they just like the greatest kind of coaching and playing effort of all time to overcome the inherent advantages that the Bucks seem to have in this game. But like, what could they have done that they didn't do? They could have like tried to max protect and like leave in a couple tight ends to like chip on these guys. They could have tried. I mean, they they did try to throw screens, but they could have just emphasized more kind of quick passes um, and and tried other ways to get Tyree kill the ball. They tried to run a little bit, um, but they could have run the ball more and tried to play more of a ball control game um, to keep the ball uh, away from Tampa. But like, you know, Joel, we've seen for the past two years, the chiefs like do all sorts of fun stuff on with motion and with underhand passes and like all the sort of design stuff. There wasn't anything you could point to in this game for the Chiefs offensively. Where you were like oh that was clever that was a good idea and i think mostly i would say 85 percent of that is because they were just so outmanned on the line that they just like couldn't do anything like even if they had they might have had a clever design but we just weren't able to see it but it did feel like there was a little bit of room for them to have like seen this coming and like had a plan. Rather than like send a bunch of guys deep and not have routes develop because dudes were in Mahomes' face all night.
2: Yeah, I mean and I guess that's really tough, right? Because it's really tough to create a game plan where you acknowledge early on that you're extremely weak. Because like you you think, well, all right, we haven't felt that pass rush yet with this set of offensive tackles and this particular offensive line. So let's see. Like can can they give us something? do we have to deviate so much from our normal game plan? And then they get out there and they're like, oh shit, they can't they can't handle these guys at all. It's out of control. And so like once you're at that point in the game, then it's like, all right, you're kind of making up things on the fly. You're having to, you know, adjust against a team that is clearly better than you and
1: clearly well, more o- dominant than you. The other thing, Joel, is that the Chiefs have been very comfortable playing from behind the last couple of years, including in the playoffs. And so even You know, whether it was Tony Romo or me or probably Andy Reid, you're sitting there and they look terrible. And you're like, well, we've we'll turn it around because we always do, and let maybe that lulled them into thinking they didn't have to change anything.
2: Well, I don't know if you all, all felt differently about this one because you're right. I mean, I watched them fall behind by tw- you know 24 to the Houston Texans. I mean, even in the AFC Championship game a couple weeks ago, they were down nine early, and it didn't really seem to matter. And in fact, it seems like the Chiefs are like activated when they fall behind. It's like, oh, okay, game started, time to get it on, but. I don't know, maybe I'm making too much of this and I don't like to exaggerate, you know, body language or whatever. But I could not remember them seeming so frustrated, so defeated at points in the game when they were behind. And and so, yeah, so if you just go back to, you know, that sort of questionable holding call on Teran Matthew uh, that made, you know, that that gave the, the Bucks the ball on the one yard line and they made it 21 to six. Right. And that just seemed like it took so much air out of the stadium. And I don't – know. like, again, normally that's not a problem for the Chiefs. Normally it's like, okay, game on, they'll be fine. But it never felt that way. And I just remember seeing Teran Matthew looking like he was losing it out there. Like he was just pissed and frustrated. And I was like, oh, they know that they're being overwhelmed right now. They, You know, when you're out there in the middle of a game and you're playing against a better team, you know it.
1: You know Yeah, I mean, those penalty – the things that really – took the Chiefs out of the game were those penalties. And then, and the last, you know, they deferred. And so they had the ball last, or they thought they would have the ball last before the, the Bucks drove down and scored a touchdown. But they had the ball last in the first half and first in the second half. And they drove down the field both times and just kicked field goals. Um, and, you know, Tyron Matthew got an interception off a deflection from Leonard Fournette. Um, but that was overturned because of a penalty and like a totally unrelated Spot on the field, there was kind of a ticky-tack call, and so these things matter. Like they affect the outcome. But like you know, I think we're all in agreement that the Bucks were going to win this game, no matter. But uh, no no matter uh, those penalties. But I think you're right, Joel, that that contributed to the frustration. I mean, like if you're on the Chiefs, you're like we're severely like outmanned here, and we're having to deal with this like ref bullshit too. Like that, I think would be the recipe for frustration. Right, to me that's the the game
0: felt like it sort of ended or at least turned at the end of the first half. I mean, it was 14 to 3 and the Chiefs drove all the way down the field and if they score a touchdown, it's 14-10 with a minute to go in the first half. And instead, you know, incomplete pass. Short passes, incomplete passes, and they don't go for it on fourth and six with a minute to go at Tampa's 14. Presumably, thinking, this can't continue. We're the Chiefs. We're going to score points. I mean, at that point, they, they're not thinking this is desperate and we are severely outmanned and we're not going to win this game. They're thinking, all right, let's take three here. We're down 14 6. We're down one score. We'll go into halftime. It could have been worse. Um, but let's get it done. And then bad clock management, two penalties on that drive. There was the earlier penalty on Breland against Mike Evans, where Evans's uh, heel clipped Breland's shin. Um, again, questionable call. Wasn't even a catchable ball. Um, and suddenly it's twenty-one to six instead of fourteen to ten. And then yeah, Tyron Matthew is frustrated, and the Chiefs are frustrated going into halftime.
1: Um, before we. And this, I think, uh, worth just giving a little bit more love and attention to the Bucks defense. Uh, you called out one of my uh, LSU favorites in a negative light, Joel. But like, I think we all must agree in the most objective fashion that Devin White is a pretty amazing and, and devastating oh, force a as, a, as a linebacker. He's a badass, um, yeah. He was great. And I was happy to see Leonard Fournette do as, as well as he did in that game after you know, not only being cut by the Jags, but, like, looking, you know, like, not a very important piece for this team during the regular season. I mean, I I don't think that they were intentionally conserving him for the playoffs, but he, like, didn't get many carries. He didn't look that great. I mean, there is this kind of, like, trope um, online that I've seen with, like, you know, quote-unquote smart football analysts talking about how he has no vision and is always just, like, running into people's backs but he looked like the best he'd ever looked as a professional football player in these games and I think it goes to show that you know th- this is like a little a little bit of a um of a side comment but if you like look at the guys who are the best like in the high school recruiting rankings Joel like that is often a better and and fournette was a top NFL draft pick too but like it's amazing how accurate those rankings are and like Never bet against a guy who is like considered the best player in the country and is like just totally dominant. And so the idea that this guy was just put on the scrap heap and considered like useless by the NFL, it's just it's like ridiculous. And I I think so many people, so many of us like bought into it, too.
2: It could well, it could be one of those things where that like, okay, he didn't become Bo Jackson, which is what I thought that he was gonna end up being when he got when you know when he when he went to LSU, I thought, oh, I've I've very rarely seen a running back with that kind of talent and athleticism and, and power and speed and I thought he was gonna be Bo Jackson. It didn't quite happen like that, but that doesn't mean that you're not gonna be an effective NFL running back. And like that's the sort of thing that good teams do. You get a discounted great player. And you add them to an ensemble cast. Ronald Jones is a really good college running back as well. And, like, all of a sudden, you've got a pretty good team. You start, you know, making those sorts of deals and, get, you know, getting those dudes at a discount. Antonio Brown at a discount, right? Rob Gronkowski at a discount. So, like, all these guys that we've known is great. They're not as great as they were, but they're good enough. And when you put them all with a team like that, then, yeah, you have a little something.
1: Two points, Joel. Number one, the, the thing I was hoping to lead you to is, like, you know Trent Richardson, he's out there. He's available. He's oh, yeah. available for anybody <laughs> yeah. wants to sign him. Joel's Joel's pick for the greatest football player ever. Number two, hey, wait, wait, wait. like with with the Antonio Brown thing, I think, you know, I am critical of the way that these broadcasts deal with players like Antonio Brown and Tyreek Hill. Not not mentioning their, you know, extremely uh, in in the cases of of both players, like long litany of um you know of of things they've they've done and been arrested for and been convicted of in some cases and so I don't want to let us like have these these segments pass by without mentioning that like the the whole like situation with the Bucks and Antonio Brown um I feel like was like handled incredibly poorly and the way that they talked about him and having like learned his lessons when there's like actually no evidence that that's happened and he has this like pending civil suit to do with a sexual assault allegation it takes a little bit of shine off and especially with like all of the praise that Bruce Arians is rightly getting for the way he's led that team the way he's you know done hiring and given black coaches a chance it's like a little bit of a A ding against them just the way that they've talked about Antonio Brown.
0: And and women and women coaches, which is more to the point in some ways.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean there's no redemption story
2: there. I saw actually a great tweet and I can't remember who tweeted it last night. They're like, don't believe karma is real. You know, if like if Antonio Brown wins a Super Bowl ring, it's like just more evidence that Karma is not a real thing. Um, Sometimes bad people, you know, have good things happen to them. And Antonio Brown is one of those dudes, you know. He got a Super Bowl ring. He he stuck it out long enough and found one guy or a couple of guys that were willing to give him a chance. And he
1: benefited. Well, Brady really was the one who wanted him so badly. Like, they had that one good game together in New England before he got bounced from there because of the sexual assault allegations. And Brady, I think, really wanted him, vouched for him. And sort of like Gronk, we were mentioning before, it's not like he had a huge year, but you know if he's a guy that if you can put him on the fields, um you know talent wins out um and and he's got it, and he scored that touchdown on the good move at the goal line
0: and maybe with with Gronk, it was sort of also a case of managing expectations and managing physical ability at this stage of his career. He did not have a great season; he only caught like forty five passes, which was what uh Say tied for ninety fourth in the NFL, but he scored two touchdowns in the Super Bowl because he knows how to get open, he knows how to block, he knows how to free himself up, and he knows how to connect with Tom Brady. I'd be curious to go back and see what we said when we talked about Gronk, whether he would come back to the league. Josh, I think we said he would come back,
1: and maybe like ultimately, all of the like extra hits he took will not be to his benefit. <laughs> later in his life, but probably today, this week, he's thinking that he made the right decision.
0: He's thinking this was a Gronking to remember. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure
2: if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to have a little bit more Super Bowl talk for you guys focusing on the CBS broadcast, what Jim Nance and Tony Romo talked about, what they omitted, how they covered the Britt Reed story. Andy Reed's son, and all of the uh, self-congratulatory hootenanny from the NFL about how they're so enlightened about race now. Uh, To listen to that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. Just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Last week, LeBron James said, I don't even understand why we're having an all-star game. That game in Atlanta will also include three-point and dunk contests, all of which are scheduled for the same day, March the 7th. That plan, according to LeBron, is a slap in the face to players who had been told that they would be getting some time off, which they feel is much needed given the NBA's compressed schedule this season. Reigning MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo said he had zero excitement and zero energy for All-Star festivities. The Kings' De'Aaron Fox said it was stupid. Kawhi Leonard of the Clippers said the NBA was just putting money over health right now. Joel, compared to the other major sports leagues, NBA generally marked by relative labor peace. But with a really short offseason, the pandemic still raging, conflicts between the players and the league seem to be escalating in the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah. And I think it says to me that, you know, even though the NBA is no longer in a bubble in Orlando, um, That the usual grind of the NBA regular season combined with these new COVID protocols have made this a deeply unenjoyable season. And of course, the players are hoping for a break, right? In a podcast with one of the Warriors owners uh, last week, Draymond Green said that the season had been particularly difficult with longer days as a result of daily testing and restrictions in the league's protocols. And he said, this is a quote, even on off days, you have to go to the facility and test. And so even just seeing that facility that day, although you may not even go in and work out, but you drive into that facility every day. Mentally, it's exhausting. And so it's been a very tough season, to say the least, and I think a lot of guys are struggling with it. And I think that when you hear the, the all-stars speak up in unison like that, when they say, hey, I have no energy for this, I don't want to do that, I, think that that's, they, I believe that they authentically feel that way. Um, and I also think that it's, you know, it just gives you an indication of how difficult it is. I mean, even though they're, you know, great and this is, you know, they get paid a lot of money to do this and this is their livelihood or whatever, it still can be really, really hard. And, uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't think that we should overlook the, you know, the fact that, like, this is, you know, an unprecedented set of circumstances that they're enduring. The bubble was unprecedented and now what they're doing is unprecedented and it's very hard and it's very difficult and there's not a lot of joy behind it. And so of course they look ahead and they're like, wait, why don't we just take a break for a little bit? Like, you know, the, the big part of the all-star game is the fan experience and it's a celebration of a game. This isn't really a time for celebration, right?
0: And it's going to expose rifts, not just between players in the league, but between players and players, Um, And I think we're seeing that, too. Chris Paul, uh, who's on the Suns now, is the president of the uh, Players Association. Longtime friend of LeBron James, right? Um, And the PA and Paul are supporting having All-Star Day, um, partly because they, you know, buy into the partnership with the league and partly because – of the way that it's being structured, you know, the, there's going to be uh, a lot of it's going to benefit HBCUs and COVID relief efforts. So the the, the All Star Weekend or All Star Day is being positioned as as a as a charitable endeavor, but in reality, it's a revenue endeavor. It's a way for the network. I think TNT is 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 doing this game. It's a net way for the network to. You know, to recoup some of the lost revenue from their NBA contracts, which have been, as in all sports, devastated by the reduced um, game load uh, because of the pandemic.
1: You mean Kawhi Leonard put a really fine point on it in the laconic way that Kawhi Leonard does, saying the league is putting money over health right now. Um, the All-Star Game is the most optional of events in any and all sports and so telling the players telling everyone it was announced publicly we're not doing an all-star game this year and then reversing that decision and saying oh actually we are doing this not because the you know the pandemic is any less um you know it, in evidence it's not like the this decision was made because like oh actually things are fine right now especially so we, we in can,
0: Georgia where they're really not fine
1: yeah i mean so there's no way to look at this and not come to the conclusion that Kawhi and other players have. The need to generate revenue is, it's not a ridiculous rationale. Um, You know, they they need to make money to pay people um, and they need to make their broadcast partners happy. It's not like the most ridiculous idea, but it's just the kind of classic conflict that every industry is going through now between what's safe and what needs to be done to keep the the doors open and the lights on but it just seems like to the players and i think totally reasonably that okay we started the season really early before christmas so you could get those christmas games in we did so under the belief and understanding that you know there wasn't going to be an all-star game like we did what you wanted us to do. And like, now you're doing this to us. Like I understand why they would think it's, it's not just unfair, but I, but I think Joel, the reason the response has been this way is not, it's not about the all-star game full stop. It's about, feels like what the league's priorities are and that it's indicative of a larger kind of rift here between, um, you know, what the what the players want and think is right and what the league seems to think it has to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing is, is that, you know, those revenue concerns are very real. I mean, we're coming off a year in which the NBA, you know, its relationship with China was severed in a lot of ways. So that cost them a lot of money. You know, we're almost a year into a pandemic, so they haven't been able to put people in arenas, you know, up to up to the normal capacity. Like, you know, some places like Atlanta, Florida, you know, the teams in Florida, like they don't you know, they're still trying to put people into the to the arenas. But they're not they've not been able to recoup some of that money that they've lost. And so they're doing what a lot of corporations do. They're trying to, you know, maintain. Uh, the, you know that revenue stream and find opportunities to make some of that money and 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 the NBA all-star game. It, yeah, it is one of the all-star games are the least optional of the games of any professional sports league, but it's different for the NBA. The all-star game is actually a showcase for the league in a way that it isn't in other leagues, you know, because, you know, you've got, you know, the NBA's NBA's collector star power right in front of your face. It's usually got, you know, celebrities, events and parties and then like this orgy of scoring on Sunday night. So, you know, I you know, you can understand why the NBA is like, "Look, man, this only really affects, you know, about 25-30 of y'all. If you guys could just get it together and go through the motions for one weekend or a few days, it could really help us out." But I can understand why Kawhi and them say, "Hey, well, look, you're prioritizing money over our health, but that's nothing new that's always the truth that's always true of every professional sports league from the way they've constructed the schedules traveling like we know that have playing that many regular season games and having the road trips that they schedule for these teams is not good for players health but they've done it they've made these decisions anyway because that's the way a league runs and so yeah like i'm i don't know if they're surprised and i doubt that they are but it's totally in keeping with a professional sports league's prerogative which is prioritizing money over the player's health.
0: Yeah, it is. And but what's happened here, Joel, is that frustration is building and understandably. I mean, like 23 games have been postponed so far this season. Hundreds of of people in NBA organizations including players have tested positive. There was a postponement last week, Detroit and Denver. Um, got postponed they were supposed to play in Denver um, there were no positive tests so that's getting better at the same time the players have had to as you mentioned with Draymond expressing his frustrations about and concerns about players mental health I mean they've agreed to a lot not just the testing but you know, they've got security guards on the court to prevent players from like talking to each other after games um, the protocols about where players are allowed to circulate on the road have been strengthened during the course of the season, including the amount of time that it's suggested that they're supposed to, you know, be with or apart from their families. So there's, there, there has been a pushback against a lot of this. And then layering on top of that, you've got concerns among players about the vaccine, which really struck me. The, the athletic did a piece about how a substantial number of players seem reluctant to get the vaccine. Um, and that's going to be one more stress issue, stress point that's going to layer on top of this in the next few weeks. So I think this is uh, the all-star, all-star game is kind of, uh, uh, it, it's just a, a sort of manifestation. It's the one example, the one place that they can let off steam and be pissed off about it You know, while trying to get through all of the stuff that they're getting through on a a daily basis through the grind of the schedule. I mean, we didn't even get to Kevin Durant's frustration last week when he was withheld from a game, cleared to play, and then like 20 minutes into the game, pulled off the bench because of a possible contact trace. So a lot of this is them being sort of getting whiplash from being told what to do and having to sort of deal with all of these heightened precautions.
1: Yeah, so the the Durant thing, he posted on Twitter, free me after the game, and also tweeted, yo, NBA, your fans aren't dumb. You can't fool them with your whack-ass PR tactics. And so he had tested negative three times in 24 hours, but had reportedly interacted with someone who tested inconclusive and then tested positive, and so he gets yanked out of the starting lineup, gets yanked out of the game, now has to sit out for a week. And I think for him, and probably for a lot of players, this feels kind of like security theater, that what is this actually doing to keep him or, or anyone else safe? And so the when you add up everything that's going on here, um, and you alluded to this, Stefan, but the tightening of protocols in January after this series of positive tests, we're now on the road, players are basically not allowed to leave their rooms, right? So you have the NBA basically implementing all the negatives about the bubble, the inability to have human contact, the sense of isolation, um, but not taking on any of the kind of costs or negatives for themselves. Like they're still having... All of the games, the players still have to travel. They're still having them all in home arenas. And so, and then the NBA pulls Kevin Durant off the court for his like safety when they're sending these players like all around the country to play in these games. Sometimes with fans, they're telling them, Oh, you have to play in the All Star game now. Oh, and you're not allowed to leave your room or see your family. And the quote that was the most striking to me was George Hill, who was one of the leaders back when he was with the Bucks in the protests after Jacob Blake got shot and the decision by the Bucs and then the rest of the teams to go on a wildcat strike and not play. But George Hill now with the Thunder saying, I'm a grown man, so I'm going to do what I want to do. If I want to go see my family, I'm going to go see my family. They can't tell me I have to stay in the room 24-7. If it's that serious, then maybe we shouldn't be playing. And so you can read that and say like, oh, he's not taking COVID seriously, protocol seriously. But I think what George Hill is saying is totally right. And he's somebody who's like smart and thoughtful and responsible. And so I, th- I think what he's saying is the NBA is trying to have it both ways and saying, oh, you have to do the X and Y for your safety. But like, ultimately we shouldn't be playing. And so you can't tell us shit.
0: <laughs> right. And which makes me wonder, Joel, do you think we're heading for another moment like inside the bubble when teams got together and said, no. No,
2: because they want to be paid. You know, if they don't play, they don't get paid. And I guess, like, I would need to know more about what the players want as an alternative then. Like, do, like, does a majority of players actually not want to play? Like, is that because that's not something that I've heard. I would like to know, like, what they're like, what would they think is the best way to pull off the rest of this season without some sort of stringent protocol? Because if they if they don't want to endure, you know, this rigorous protocol, I mean, none of us would. Who want to get tested? Like, in the way that you have to get tested, like, I wouldn't want to do that every day. I would not want to be limited to my hotel room every day. I don't like being limited to my home every day right now. But like, Joel,
1: I, I think that's why the All-Star Game has become this, like, it's like the nail sticking out of the board. Like, there's no, I think you're right, there's no good answers or easy answers Any of this stuff, and there's no proposal that would be like, oh, that would maximize revenue and also keep us safer. But the All Star Game just feels like they were told we're not playing it. Yeah, it's It's, gratuitous. (laughs) Yeah, like that's the one thing they can point to and be like, here's an easy thing we could not do. And if you really wanted to like live the values that you're expressing, you would say, you know, we're we're not doing this.
0: And on top of that, look, since they went back into the bubble, they got a very brief um hiatus after the 2020 season ended they were asked to start and play an almost full schedule and for the very best players the guys that are going to be playing in the all-star game they're going to be expected if there are olympics in tokyo in july to basically go right from the end of the season to the olympics um so you're basically asking professional athletes to play a full year without much of a break and then resume again in the fall on the NBA's more typical, historical October start. Frustration's going to keep building.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they're frustrated. I would like to know more about, again, the rest of the league's rank and file, because, again, All-Star Weekend only really matters for, like, a, a, a very small fraction of the NBA players. I mean, like, do you think Clint Capella, like, has a, an opinion about All-Star Weekend? I doubt that he does. But, you know, the league's biggest stars, you know, biggest names, they're the ones that have, you know, the narrative right now. They're just like, this is a way for them to express frustration, I suppose. And, you know, that's that's very fair. Like, I can I understand why they feel that way, but I just – I don't, like, you know, who – do you think you know? I'm trying to try. I'm trying to think of the most. Think of the Kendall Gill of the NBA today. Like, does that guy <laughs> You're really hitting yourself? Shit? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a casual. I guess I don't know why I can't think of it. Seth Curry, does Seth Curry really care? If uh, well, he probably going to play in a three point con- con- contest, so I no, mean, let not think about it. So.
1: PJ Tucker, you think PJ Tucker, Tucker?
2: Yeah, does PJ Tucker really? PJ
1: Tucker is going to get some time off, so he doesn't. Right. He doesn't care. Okay, we talked in the first segment about the folly of predictions. I'm going to make a prediction right now, one that will, uh, low, low stakes, because uh, if I get it wrong, who cares? I think that if the Olympics are played, then Kyle Kuzma will be on the Olympics Olympic team. And if not literally <laughs> Kyle Kuzma, it will be just like full of Kyle Kuzma-like players. Yeah. LeBron James is not going to play in, in the Olympics. Yeah, I don't think so. Probably not. Yeah. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change.
0: Fighting for what we deserve.
1: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
3: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
0: And now it is time for Afterballs. We didn't uh, answer the question. Who was the only super vocalic (laughs) Super Bowl player? In 2021 You guys know the answer But someone close to my heart Kicker For the Chiefs Harrison Butker H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N-B-U-T-K-E-R-A-E-I-O-U Harrison Butker Super vocalic kicker
1: Our after ball name of the week The only uh, guy who scored for the Chiefs sadly, for the Chiefs.
0: Josh, what's your Harrison Butker?
1: Last week in this space, I talked about a letter that Jackie Robinson wrote to a New Orleans sports columnist named Bill Keefe. Keefe had called Robinson a, quote, enemy of his race and, quote, a persistently insolent and antagonistic troublemaking Negro. Robinson responded with an eloquent and searing letter one that ended with the lines, I am happy for you that you were born white. It would have been extremely difficult for you had it been otherwise. I got into some of the context and backstory last week about Bill Keefe's racism and the Louisiana segregation law that he defended in the Times-Picayune newspaper. In the days since I did that first story, I've learned a bunch more, which I'm going to spell out in a written piece on Slate that I'll publish this week. So please look for that. Uh, One of my resources in doing this additional research was Bill Keefe's daughter, Isabel Keefe Marrero. She's 83 years old. She lives in Alabama. Her life story is really incredible. I'm going to save most of it for the piece I'm writing, but I'll just say that her family helped integrate a previously all-black Catholic school in Huntsville, Alabama, And that Isabel taught and coached at that school for many years. One of her students was actually Condridge Holloway, who would go on to be the first black quarterback in Southeastern Conference football. Um, He played at Tennessee in the early 1970s. But back to Jackie Robinson and Bill Keefe. Isabel, uh, Bill Keefe's daughter, told me that she knew her dad had written about Jackie Robinson, but that she did not know that Robinson had sent a letter in response until I had sent her that letter. We had a couple long conversations this past week. I want to play you now a short back and forth from one of those conversations. And so what did you think of the way the Robinson letter ended? I'm happy for you that you were born white. It would have been extremely... Oh, that's very true. That's very true. You stop and
3: think of the way my daddy thought. He thought blacks were inferior I mean you know he thought they were inferior so what what what
1: if he was black I mean how would that work in his head it would be very hard for him like I said I will have more on this and a piece on slate this week I will post that story on the hang up and listen Facebook page when it is out in the world Um, so please look out for it I think it's going to be good
2: can't wait to read that. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, God bless a lot of people that don't have to be black because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, like, presumably a lot of people could not hold up under it pretty well. So, yeah.
1: Indeed. That is very true. All right, Stefan, what is your Harrison Butker? I watched the new
0: feature film One Night in Miami the other day. It imagines a dramatic historical gathering, Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cook celebrating Clay's heavyweight title win over Sonny Liston on February 25th, 1964. While the movie takes plenty of dramatic and chronological license, the men did indeed gather that night, and they did, at Malcolm's insistence, eat ice cream. Uh, I wanted to find out a little bit more, so I, I did a little more research. The days after the fight were a whirlwind. The next morning, the 22 year old champ declared his religious affiliation. I believe in Allah, he told reporters, and he uttered a more famous line too I don't have to be what you want me to be. The day after that, he appeared in public with Malcolm X, who was in a Nation of Islam tug of war over Clay's loyalties with Elijah Muhammad and continued talking about Islam, race, and segregation. Clay then drove to New York, did more interviews, and toured the UN with Malcolm. Then Elijah Muhammad announced that the boxer's name would now be Muhammad Ali. In the middle of all of this, in the middle of his spiritual and political awakening, and in the face of enormous public backlash from the white media, Clay met with Sam Cooke at Columbia Records in New York, to record a song. As Jonathan Ige explains in his biography, Ali a Life*, the business syndicate that backed Clay, the Louisville sponsoring group, had contingency plans to make him an entertainer in case he lost to Liston and his boxing career was cut short their first effort was a comedy album released in august 1963 titled of course i am the greatest it was recorded at columbia records in new york clay recited poems designed to further hone his image as bold fearless and outspoken a crossover black athlete unlike anything america had seen before
2: and now
3: ladies and gentlemen from louisville kentucky wearing black tie Mr. Cassius Marcellus
1: Clay.
0: A bell rings, Clay reads. His delivery isn't the polished Ali that the world would come to know later. A lot of it is cringeworthy, Clay taunting Liston as fat, Clay reading JFK lines about how he's the new frontier of boxing and will win the championship with Viga, and saying... I don't ask what boxing can do for me, I ask what I can do for boxing. A New York comedy writer named Gary Belkin wrote the material, which as John Egg notes, was a step up from Ali's juvenile stuff. Before that, this guy's a bum, he'll fall in one.
3: This brass young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance but if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. (laughs) Yes, I'm the man this poem is about. I'll be champ of the world, there isn't a doubt. Here I predict Mr. Liston's dismemberment. I'll hit him so hard, he'll wonder where October and November went. (laughs)
0: I Am the Greatest, hit number 61 on the Billboard charts, and it was nominated for a Grammy. After that, Clay recorded a cover of the 1961 hit Stand By Me by Ben E. King.
3: No, I won't be afraid. No, I I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand.
0: On that trip to New York after beating Liston, Clay ventured to Columbia Records again, this time with Sam Cooke. Cook directed Ali on an adaptation of an old party chant, Hail, hail, the gang's all here, which he modernized to Hey, hey, the gang's all here. The New York Times covered the taping. It reported that between takes, Cassius sat at the drums and beat a solid rhythm. He also played a few bars of rock and roll on the piano. According to Peter Garalnik's book, Dream Boogie, The Triumph of Sam Cook, Cook then accompanied Ali to an interview with the BBC boxing commentator harry carpenter after discussing the fight carpenter asked clay who was with him let's listen to what happened next
3: mm-hmm. this is sam cook as you can see like me he's awful pretty <laughs> and we are here now working on a record called the gang's all here and uh, uh, sam and i we expect to have this out in another week or so would you like to give us uh, a preview of this disc well, uh, this, I want to give you a little introduction. Only this record is uh, uh, talking about, uh, uh, you know, me, the greatest, and uh, the various people in countries such as England and Paris. And uh, uh, we'll give them a sound. Come on, up? let's give them a sound. We, we'll do a lot better if we had the music here with us. we're going to do the, it We'll, we'll try music. now. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Join in the fun. <laughs> hey, hey, the gang's all here we going to swing as one. Do it again now. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Join in the fun. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. We're going to swing as one. Is New York with me? Yeah! Is Chicago with me? Yeah! yeah. Is London with me? Yeah. yeah! Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Cook
0: probably wisely didn't sing on the actual recording, but what's fascinating to me about the comedy album and the music is the way it catches Cassius Clay evolving into Muhammad Ali. It's a moment of transition and maybe confusion about who he is and what he might become. One day he's meeting with Nation of Islam and endorsing black nationalism. The next he's recording a comedy album and singing with Sam Cook. It was hard at this point to know who Clay slash Ali was, what he actually believed, whom he really trusted. Of course, Ali, though, would pull it all off, being all things to all people, but always somehow seeming true to himself.
2: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that dude was special even at that very young age. And it was, you know, an old person would say, God, don't make no mistakes. And, you know, with Muhammad Ali, man, or Cassius Clay, um, you just see that everything that happened to him That followed like wasn't a mistake.
1: Uh, I mean, I think it was probably a mistake for him to try to emulate Benny King and sing "Stand By Me," but like (laughs) we can we can overlook that.
0: But you know, I I should also add that quality of uh, of Ali's singing voice aside, he did not give up on it. In 1976, he released an album called "Ali and His Gang Versus Mister Tooth Decay." Oh yeah,
1: that's that's a famous one,
0: Frank Sinatra.
1: Did Frank Sinatra play Tooth Decay?
0: I don't know who starred as Tooth Decay. Howard Cosell was the announcer for that one. It was a a, a bold musical choice.
1: Don't give up on your dreams. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Jasmine Ellis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you made it this far, i going to give you a heads up next week because of President's Day. We're going to be uh, recording our show on Tuesday, February 16th. Tell your friends. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. I'm members is Elmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.